Give the sucker an even break. Give the sucker an even break, I say. Well, I finally decided what I'm going to be. I was uh, sitting around, and, uh, you know, it's a, it's a brave new year here, and uh, Shepard has entered it bravely, with spirit, and... Uh, I was just sitting around uh, thinking, well, now, finally it's got to come down to this. What am I going to do? Have you ever wondered, you know, really seriously looked at yourself and says, uh, you know, say to yourself, well, uh, it's about time that you decide what you're going to do in life. Now, you're certainly not going to continue to do that idiotic fooling around that you've been doing up to this time, are you, Herb? Now, come on, now. At the age of 74, you can't see yourself arguing with Barry Farber, can you? I mean, all right, what am I... I've decided what I'm going to do. I've decided on the ideal... the ideal profession. I am going to be a consultant. That's a perfect scene. Just to consult. I mean, this is the age of the consultant. It's also the age of the critic... I mean, we all know that any editorial writer knows a heck of a lot more about government than any politician. You agree with that? In fact, any folk singer knows more about government and economics, peace, life, all of it, than any politician or economics professor. So the thing to do is to be a consultant. Consult. Is there anybody out there tonight who needs any consulting? If you need any anything that uh, I could consult with you on and advise you about, I'd be... Well, who's, who's the biggest, uh, the, the secret underground biggest personality of our day? Is it uh, Johnny Carson? Oh, no, come on. Who is it? Dear Abby, I would suspect that 475 billion people Wait for Abby's every word, every day. Now, does that mean she's right? No. She's there. Being an oracle is one of the best businesses that one can ever get into. And uh, I think I have the qualifications, don't you? I mean, you know, I have a certain uh, elan, <laughs> and, uh, certain uh, brass, right? That's what it takes. And there's a certain... Uh, Basic authority. Now, uh, I'll be here for a while here, and I'm perfectly willing to consult. Of course, you understand that my consulting is not done... Uh, it's a profession. I'm not a, an amateur consultant, and it is purely professional. Uh, the other night, for example, you know, the consultant business can get very exciting if you uh, get deeply into it. Uh, we have somebody that needs is a dire need of consulting, well, they cannot immediately get through to the oracle. You must point out to them that no oracle is immediately available. One does not call the oracle of Delphi on the phone. One goes through a series of ritualistic approval stages. One has to break through various barriers till one reaches the point of speaking face-to-face -face with the oracle. Tell him, thank him very much, but uh, uh, he'll just have to call his aunt Glenn. So I've always been advising him since he was nine anyway. However, what's the matter, Herb? Everybody, no, everybody's looking for somebody to lead them. They really are. 
There's no question about that, that the world is waiting for someone to straighten it out, right? This is why dictators have continually popped up throughout history, in spite of any other analysis that you may put on it, like economic, that's all frosting on the cake. Ultimately, we want somebody who is infallible, who is above human frailties and basic vices. I am. I can I can frankly tell you <laughs> that I'm not prey to the ordinary grubbing problems that the walking around man is prey to. You've noticed that, Herb. You've noticed that too, Jerry. In fact, here on the 23rd floor, they've often said, you son of a gun, when are you going to be commercial? I've never done it. Well, that proves my basic honesty, right, gang? All right. I think that uh, the time has come that uh, might as well uh, throw the cards on the table. Might as well fling the hat right there in the ring. That uh, I don't think, uh, I don't think we're looking for a mayor or a president. I think we're looking for something bigger than that. Because after all, you can, you know, you can throw a mayor or a president out of office because he, you know, he, he winds up, you know, playing footsies with the mafia or three or four of his city council winds up in the clink. We've had that right here in Fun City. Mayor wasn't in 12 minutes and five of his guys were already in a slam. Well, we want somebody better and bigger and better than that, right? Of course we do. Okay. Now, there's no reason why I can't step into that gap. I mean, I've thought about it seriously. It's taken me a long time. I've worked on this concept for maybe thinking about it. Many times I've sat in the quietude of... of uh, a nest of uh, of contemplation. I've said to myself, who's better equipped? And I have not come up with anybody. I fought this thing for years. I kept saying to myself, why, there must be somebody, Shepard, who's better equipped to advise the world to uh, maintain control over a mad universe. I have not come up with anybody yet. So finally I've had to, with reluctance, accept the burden of responsibility. That there is only one person. <laughs> I don't uh, I don't want you to misunderstand. It's nothing to do with ego. This is merely a fact that we must accept. It's nothing to, in fact I wish it were otherwise. You've noticed this, Herb, I've looked for somebody to advise us here and, but it's never worked out that way. So uh, I am now a consultant. I'm waiting uh I'm expecting a call from the president, possibly. And uh, we'll take it from there. Now, uh, you notice that the the, the, the the subtle thing, for example, that must be followed by an oracle is that an oracle must be almost unreachable by mortal means. And so an oracle must appear in the unlikeliest of places. He must appear... It must appear. There's no he involved. It's an it. The oracle who controls the universe, the time, and the lives of all of us with absolute equanimity, with total generosity, with uh, unfailing compassion, must be untouchable by the ordinary man. He must be incorruptible. And to be incorruptible, one must be untouctable. Correct, Amor? 
one must have a broad view. So, uh, we're waiting. We're just waiting. And the call will come. And all the while, as we wait here atop this vast Olympus of untouchability, this unreachable plateau of the Olympiad, this, uh, this den of the Delphic Oracles, we wait. And as we wait, and godlike, by the way, the oracle in godlike disdain of those lesser and unfortunately mortal beings over which he has control, must in all things have godlike disdain. So we, the god, and, and uh, we've always preferred fallible gods ultimately, but fallible in a lovable way. Now, since we're going through a vague period here at this point of uh, almost a pagan, hedonistic return in uh, many respects to the days, or certainly the attitudes and the outlooks of uh, Attila the Hun and uh, various other practitioners of barbaric practices of an earlier period, there's no reason why we shouldn't return to the gods of that period. A pantheon, a pantheon of highly fallible, totally humorous, completely swinging gods. I mean, who could resist winged Mercury? Winged Mercury. Who could uh, resist the sultry Diana, the goddess of the hunt? Who also was not above a little hanky-panky with Neptune in the bushes? Bring it up there, please, if you will. And I reset that, uh, if you will, sir. Don't call. It will do you no good. I am not in the mood. The Delphic Oracle has turned off the vibrations. So please, don't bother me. I'm dealing with cosmic issues here. I'm fool around with somebody from Staten Island. Oh, there's this dog that barks outside of my window every night. And I told that neighbor I'd kill him with a... No, no, don't... Uh... Bother me with this trivia, which reminds me, this is WOR. We are in New York. Speaking of Delphic plateaus and oracular caves of the winds. Come on. You don't mind my a few classical references we make occasionally. I mean, you know, this is WOR after all, striding like a, like bestriding the world like a colossus. A veritable third in the line of the seven major wonders of the known universe. I think Smitty'd like that, don't you? 
I don't suppose John Diatello says if I know what I'm talking about. If I could get Ethel Merman to sing it, he may understand it. Oh, listen, uh, speaking of the Delphic things, as we often do, you know, I, I, the, the problem of being an oracle is that you're, you're constantly going in and out of favor. If you predict bad things, people tend to want to get rid of you. If you predict good things, they love you. And uh, so you tend to go in and out. For example, the other night on one of our shows, you may have heard it, uh, I predicted ultimately the, uh, the American educational system will become a branch of showbiz. You might have heard that. Did you hear that, Harry? Well, I, uh, people will hear that and they say, oh, that's kind of funny. And they don't think really seriously that I'm being serious. No, I'm, I'm very serious. I'm giving you an oracular view of it. I believe ultimately showbiz will be interchanged with, uh, with uh, entertainment and entertainment and education will all meld into one. And ultimately, they'll change places. They will change places. If you if you if you're uh, if you're aware, say for example, the history of FM recently. But a few years ago, if you wanted serious radio, you listened to FM. And today, if you want uh, acne radio, you listen to FM. And AM is the only place where it's being said. You notice this interesting switch. But if I had predicted that five years ago, you'd have thought Shepard has flipped his cork again. No, I'm sorry. We Delphic Orioles must oracles must deal with the way it is. And the Orioles did pretty well last season, too, and uh, <laughs> in a rather cruel fashion. Uh, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. I, I referred to the school system, right? You recall that? This is what we're referring to. We must understand, of course, that the average walking around person has a, has a, uh, has a retentative factor of about, oh, maybe eight minutes, uh, an attention factor of less than seven milliseconds at this time. His mind is attuned more to a split screen than anything else. So uh, uh, I must refresh your memory that your oracle recently pointed out that showbiz and education would meld until ultimately all of education would be showbiz. Historical professors would stride out on the stage wearing a costume rented from Brooks. They would wear, uh, let's say, the uniform of a Lance Grenadier in the 7th Hussar Rifles. To, uh, and, and, and drag a muzzle loader out on the stage, which will be, of course, the classroom. Lights will shift and change, and vague Tchaikovskyan uh, music celebrating the Battle of 1812 will play behind him. And he will tell how it really was in the great, the great retreat from Moscow. And uh, <laughs> he'll have makeup artists and so on, and... Whether you learn anything about the Battle of Moscow or, or the Napoleonic Wars is beside the point. You'll have one hell of an afternoon in class. And the teacher, of course, will eventually wind up signing autographs and getting a call from Daryl Zanuck. I suspect that the ultimate change will come. That, the, that the, the, the entertainment world will become educational. Have you noticed how many educational shows have suddenly popped up on television? The Home Life of the Marmoset. A seven-part, two-hour special by the National Geographic in prime time. You've noticed this? You won't get that at NYU because that's too much of a drag. <laughs> you may get a rock concert saluting Eric the Red uh, as a historical exercise. So everything is slowly beginning to change. Now, uh, I, I also I further predict that within uh, the, within a short time, 
Uh, in fact, I think I even glancingly predicted this in an earlier show, that education would ultimately also be totally fun. And if it isn't fun, people won't go to it. We're living in a fun-oriented world. And if it's fun, it's relevant. If it's not fun, it's a drag. And it's irrelevant. That which is generally fun is called relevant in people's lives. Now, what can fun be? Well, fun is often having somebody stand up in front of you and, and agree with you and tell you you're groovy. That can be very enjoyable. Hence, the speaker who is doing that is relevant. A speaker who disagrees violently with you and says you're basically a clod and a knave is obviously irrelevant. So, uh, ultimately, uh, I uh, predict that, uh, that classes will be held that will be pure, unadulterated fun. I have predicted, and they will be fun. What we consider today irrelevance will become relevant in the old Aurelian principle. For example, we would like to salute tonight Bethany. Do you know where it is, Bethany? you know where Bethany is? Bethany College? We would like to salute Bethany College. How many of you ever heard of it? Bethany College has made the first move towards making, uh, yeah, towards making education relevant. Would you please give me my salute to Bethany? You see, these little things which slowly creep out of the woodwork never creep out of the areas that are generally considered to be avant-garde. For many, many generations, historians have pointed out that vast movements in countries almost always come from places least likely to produce the great revolutions. So, it, is, it follows that Hitler did not come from Berlin, which was a ferment of, of uh, political activity in the 1900s and the early 20s. Where did he come from? A little quiet, sleepy town just on the other side of Munich. In fact, in Austria, a little town named Linz, which you probably even today have never heard of. <laughs> so tonight, we salute Bethany. We have here, for the January 3rd, which has just been released, a variety of new classes available. 24 classes have been structured. We're reading from the Bethany College Bulletin. 24 classes have been structured by Bethany faculty for on and off campus courses. These are all credit courses. Among these are a sailing trip in France, sailing in the Bahamas, skiing in the Alps, underwater photography in Florida, and a special graduate series of courses which will include uh, a visit to London, side trips including Canterbury, Hampton Court, Cambridge, and the London theatrical scene. Several young sociologists will travel to the San Francisco Bay Area for vocational and lifestyle experiments, all with full credit. So you'll now get three credit hours for living as a hippie, which uh, has become a credit, in fact, five credit hours if it's your major. Depends on whether it's an elective or it's a requirement. I suspect the time will come when you'll get seven credit hours for watching ball games as part of your physical culture series of courses. Oh, Dad, listen, school is such a drag. I had to spend seven weeks in France skiing last year. What do you mean? What do you think I got to do this year? I got to go do some, uh, you know, I got to go, I got to take this sailing trip to the Bahamas now. Oh, gee whiz. <laughs> Ba-da-da-da! <laughs> <laughs>
have discovered the, the, the problem, what we call is the residual fallout of eventual probability. Did you hear that, Herb? I want you to repeat that now. That will appear in the exam. The residual fallout factor, the eventual probability, which means that when you make a prediction, often it turns out to be paler than the reality. So to predict that people would get credit for taking a sailing trip to the Bahamas and then taking a skiing trip to France, uh, is uh, you know it goes way beyond the uh, the prediction. Now here we have I have another here. It'll, it's the only reason I bring this stuff up is that there may be questions later in the exam for this. Now I would like to show you how it is how it is uh, how education is proceeding. Now I'm not putting take, putting it down. I'm merely telling you what's happening. I do not create the news, man. And we oracles do not create events. We merely predict them. And after their reality, we sit up here and laugh loudly and wait for the next uh, omen. See, we deal with omens largely. Now, if you think that, well, you know, Bethany College, you ever heard of Bethany College in, the, in the, you know, West Virginia? Uh, you do agree, then, that the University of California at Berkeley is pretty official. You want to hear what's been happening there? Would you please would like to salute Berkeley? <laughs> Curious. All right, I thought you'd like to hear this. This is from an educational magazine. Curious. It's a very important type magazine. In fact, it's from a from a chemical journal. In fact, it's the the, uh, the equivalent of the AMA journal in the chemical world. News. Teachers of science in colleges and universities were quoting who struggle regularly with the problems of teaching required courses in various universities will be pleased to learn of an approach tried last spring by botanist W.A. Jensen of the University of California. One, Dr. Jensen and his teaching assistant decided to bend to their purpose the techniques of the light show. Lights and images flashed on the ceilings and the walls and floors and used commonly to augment the impact of rock music. We completely produced the entire class, he said. The group of students whose senses were thus assaulted was by far the most enthusiastic class I've dealt with in 12 years in the University of California. Lights, flashing things. Once in a while you'd see a brief glimpse of a plant going by. It was fantastically exciting, and all the students loved it. Rock music with stones, yelling, singing. Of course, he doesn't point out at any point whether they learned anything about botany, but they sure enjoyed it. Thank you, thank you, Herbert. Hi, George. Now, these are all actual uh, events that have already occurred, so I, I don't know, you know. <laughs> There's uh, there's more in the wind than that. Of course, you see this this uh, this is an old problem. When when uh, when you buy hedonism completely, it has un un uh, untold effects. Most people, you know, I remember one time. Uh, if, if, Hello, good morning. What are you doing in here at this hour? You never get ahead that way. Guys that work at night never make it, Keith. I realize that. 
But uh, nevertheless, uh, the the, <laughs> the problem of of, uh, of adopting a philosophy, whatever it might be, uh, is that each philosophy has great trapdoors that are never really discovered until the philosophy is adopted. And then the rest of the time you spend after you've adopted a philosophy, you cover up the holes. You run around like mad and try to pretend it ain't happening, see? And uh, this is one of the reasons why almost any anybody who's who's uh, adopted any kind of a, of a rigid dogma spends a great deal of time trying to prevent news of what's happening from getting out. <laughs> what really happens? Have you noticed that almost every major... A uh, dictatorial country has an iron curtain. Well, it's not to prevent news that's happened out of here from getting in. It's to prevent news from in there getting out. You see, if 26,000 guys are arrested in one year for making contraband seven-ruble notes in the basement in Kiev, that all of a sudden says a lot about the worker historical uh, hero state. And so you know we're all uh, we're all in the same bag together. I, re- I remember this. This uh, of course we tend at a certain point in our lives. I think, if I may get the pompous at this point, to totally embrace a philosophy, without almost without question. And if it's presented by a persuasive person to us initially, quite often that will be carried through our lives. That, that almost any dogmatic person I know, really dogmatic, uh, who has all the answers and keeps whipping out books to prove their points, and that's the saddest kind of a person who has to refer to the writings of people to prove a point. Nothing has ever been proven to me by writing, uh, personally. Uh, you may find books very comforting to you, but uh, I have never had anything proven to me about life by an essay on life by anybody. Uh, I may have been stimulated in my thinking at points, but I've never had anything proven to me by an essay. And that's a big difference. And uh, so if, you, if you're if at, at a certain age in your life, a persuasive person, somebody you really dig for one reason or another, uh, propounds a total philosophy to you, you are apt to carry that all through your lives, whatever it might be. I remember one time talking to this dedicated, uh, I mean, he was a real dedicated, genuinely dedicated uh, uh, Hitlerian, as a matter of fact. He was a Hitlerian fascist. And uh, I don't know whether any of you have ever talked to any of them, but I had a, a chance to do this. And, and after we finally got off the subject of all the various philosophies, it turned out that his father was too, which didn't surprise me. Uh, because and he also admired his father immensely. And so ultimately, he was formed in that image. And it was impossible. Because you see, if you ever admit that the philosophy is bad at any point, you have to admit something about your background. You're admitting something about your father. And uh, if this starts to fall apart, it's very hard to, <laughs> to concede this. You notice that how many violent, uh, whatever the ist is or the ism, how many violent leftists, for example, have a father who at one point or is a, also a violent leftist, or he's a theoretical leftist, one thing. So this tends to become self-repetitive self, self, uh, self repetitive over and over again. 
until ultimately it's very hard to escape from the impact of an individual on you, a person, uh, a specific thing that creates you in that way. I, I remember the, one, of the, one of the very few courses people keep saying, why don't you talk about more when you were in college? I do. I quite often do. And, and I'll tell you, when I was in school, uh, and I'm talking about university at this point, one of the great truly educational courses I ever had was taught by a guy, strange man, uh, and uh, an odd character. He taught ethics. Now, I don't know whether you've ever had courses in ethics. Most people have never had much in the way of formal education in, in the, in the uh, rigorous arts of thinking, among them ethics and logic. And uh, this, uh, most people think they know logic automatically. What do you mean logic? I'm logical. Well, are you? Uh, not necessarily, and I don't make any claim to it myself. But it is a science, and there are certain... Uh, certain rules, formulae, and et cetera, evolved in these various thinking, uh, uh, I suppose you can, well, they're actually uh, disciplines. It's a scientific discipline. And so uh, I, I was enrolled in this course in ethics, which I just took uh, as a kind of a fill course. You know, it was one of these things in the bottom of the catalog. And it was a, it was a, uh, an elective. And I said, ethics? Ah, there's nothing to ethics. <laughs> I figured ethics. I didn't even know that. I thought it was going to be as a snap three, uh, what was it, three credit hour, yeah, it was a snap three credit hour course, you know, and I was taking, uh, uh, at the time, organic chemistry and a few other real killers, and I figured I needed something to, to pick up a quick three credit hours. Well, I'll never forget what happened in that. Well, talk about being mousetrapped for crying out loud. I uh, signed up for this course, and, and the first day I arrived, it was, it was uh, taught at two o'clock in the afternoon right after lunch. And, uh, you know, you come in, you kind of feel uh, expansive after lunch. You're ready to... The, you, the day is practically... Uh, it's over the hump, you know. The day is practically done. Uh, the, the last course, the last class was out at about 3.30, quarter of 4. I figure, you know, it, it, kind of a great afternoon. So I remember going into this class, and um, this guy sitting up on the desk there, and uh, he's, uh, he's got iron-gray hair. He's got a curious look in the eyes. And uh, just uh, sort of a... He looked a little like Lee J. Cobb, as a matter of fact. He had a sort of vaguely sardonic look. And so we all sat down, and he started the first class. You know the story. You, I mean, you know the feeling, Herb. He started the first class. He says, well, talk very quietly. He says, well, of course, this is a course in ethics, which is ridiculous anyway. He says, from the start, he says, it's ridiculous to think that you can teach ethics. You know, but anyway, this is what it is. So already I'm thinking, what the, you know, what's, what's up here? You know, he says, all right. He says, I'll tell you, we have a few textbooks, and uh, the uh, textbook which we're going to require you to read is the following textbook. He says, this is a requirement here. He says, you read this textbook, and there are a few other pieces of additional reading you can read if you want to read. And I'm sitting back there, you know, I'm smart. I figure, wow, well, that was just one class, you know, one, no, three credit hours, and I'm sitting there, and the flies are buzzing around me. Little realize I'm about to get one of the great educational experiences of my life. And so he said, uh, you can pick this workbook. It's a workbook and a, and a text. He said, you pick it up down at the bookstore. So... We had talked a little bit, and he didn't say much. He just said, uh, you know, any you got anything to want, you want to say this first class, you know, what you, uh, do you like being here? 
What do you think of it? And uh, so somebody got up and said, Ah, it's not relevant. And he said, Oh, that's probably true. He said, I've never found anything in my life that was, but uh, all right, I'll buy that. It's not relevant to anybody else. Yeah, already they were saying relevant. This, this goes all the way back to Plato. The first guys that sat next to Socrates said, Listen to this old son of a bitch. What, what is this stuff? What a grandstand act, this business of a hemlock cup. Oh, you know. So let's face it, uh, sardonic uh, put-down is always part of the audience. And when you're in a classroom, you are in the audience. Ain't no way about it, you know. <laughs> you feel vaguely inferior to the person on the stage. And at the same time, you feel like you'd like to get them. You'd like to shoot them down. This is a combined problem. So, and it works often against each other. And if we're lucky, it'll cancel each other out. But when one side takes over more than the other, you will either have destructive forces, which will blow up the thing on the stage, which happens maybe to be education. Or on the other hand, if the other side of the nature takes over, you may find an excessive worship of what's on the stage. And both are equally pernicious. Uh, I think anyone that worships book knowledge and education worships it is as pernicious as one who wishes to destroy it. They're both wrong, and they're both true believers. It's like uh, I always get this uncomfortable feeling reading the New York Times uh, theater section. They really worship the theater. They really do. Poor, sad, tacky theater, you know, with the poor, sad, tacky actors and, and those poor, sad paper sets up there. And... And perhaps what you really are saying, you worship myth, you worship worship dreams, which is probably true. All right, fine. But don't call them any more than that. That's all they are. And so I, I was sitting in this class, and uh, he's standing up there in front of the class, not really standing, sort of casually sitting on the desk, and he said, well, he said, I, I, I just want all of you to know one thing. He said, uh, this is probably the hardest class you'll ever take. He said, I, I uh, have to tell you this. He said, uh, and if you if you want to drop out, uh, he said, it's all right with me. He said, because you can really get into trouble here. He said, but I don't want to I don't want to have anybody's blood on my hands. And if you want to if you want to drop out, fine. I won't fail you or anything. You just go down and tell me these. But it's it's a it's a buster, friend. And so I'm sitting back, I says, you know, this one guy gets up and says, uh, what do you mean, sir? Incidentally, that's the common put-down word among all, among all students. If you're called sir by anybody, he's putting you down. You must understand that. A lot of people misunderstand that. They think that students are being polite to them by calling them sir. That's a put-down. So uh, he says, uh, uh, sir, uh, I'd like to ask you... Uh, uh, you know, you say this is a difficult course. Well, uh, I suspect that uh, ethics may be for some people. And he left it hanging there, saying, the guy says, well, all right. So <laughs> that was the way the first class went. It was a curious class. Well, then we got out, and uh, it was a beautiful sunny day. And uh, it was right like now. It was right after the, the uh, holidays, and it was the beginning of the, you know, the late uh, fall, late uh, winter and early spring semester. It was like February or late January. So I walked down to the book, the bookshop there, and four or five of us were down there, and I picked up this book, which was called something like, I will paraphrase it, The Six Basic Western Philosophies. 
the six basic Western philosophies. I wonder if you can name them, the six basic philosophies. Can you? All right. So I I, uh, I took the, this textbook, say, and and uh, he and he had assigned us to read the first section at our leisure, and that we would work through it. You see, the the first couple of weeks was going to deal. We were going to deal with the six basic philosophies by sections. So I took this thing home. And I looked at it. It looked really interesting, and it also looked easy. <laughs> so I picked this thing up, and the first one in the in the textbook was the Platonic philosophies. And uh, and I remember going into this. Uh, I had a, a room that had been fixed up. I had a, like a a bedroom in the front of the house where I did all my studying. I'm sitting down here, see. So I I finished with the with the real stuff. You see the uh, the uh, <laughs> you know the the organic chemistry, the real stuff. I finish with all this stuff, and now it's late at night, and I pick up this thing. I said, well, I ought to read at least a couple of pages, because up to this point, I'd always been able to fake anything, say, in school. So I, I read the first couple of pages, and it started to get me, you see, about what life is about and how man should live is what, it essence, in essence, it's, it's about. And, it's, and, I, and I'm reading this, and I said, gee, this is fantastic. Well, I read this whole thing that night, and by maybe four o'clock in the morning, I was a dedicated uh, believer in Platonic <laughs> philosophy. I mean, it was fantastic. It was it was a whole groovy thing. So, I, so I, uh, the next Wednesday, which was the day after, uh, we, the class was three days a week. We all arrived in there, and he's sitting up in the front. And he says, "Well," he said, "How many of you had a chance to read the first section?" At least part of everybody's hands goes up, and he says, "You know." He said, uh, I want to tell you about the Platonic uh, philosophy. He said, uh, "He said personally, I feel that this philosophy, the essences of it and the ramifications of it are probably the most civilized view of life that man has ever, has ever contrived. And so everybody says, great, you know, because I had already dug the first, uh, the first thing of it was great. So for the next two weeks... We talked about this, and every afternoon in class, my belief in the Platonic philosophies was more was stronger. Until finally, at the end of the two weeks, he took over the class, and he said, well, now we've come to the end. He says, now, any of you have any questions about this? And we were sold. I mean, every one of us, you know, we would have, sit, we would have sat at the feet of Plato till hell flows over from here on in. And for the next class, this class, he says, all right, I'm going to start leveling with you. And he spent the entire class showing us every total fallacy that was contained in this structure of thinking. Destroyed it entirely. And all of us are sitting there, but, 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 guys would jump up, you know, and he said, well, all right. Gone. All right. I mean, total confusion. So we started on the next section, which was the Epicurean philosophies, which are not the same as hedonism. And going through this, I, re I suddenly realized I was, I was never a Platonist at all. I was an Epicurean. <laughs> and by the end of the second week, man, I was the most dedicated Epicurean you've ever seen in your life. Or if you prefer, Epicurean, which has little to do with a cooking show on Channel 13. And... Uh, by the end of that two weeks, I was sold. It was direct, almost the direct uh, uh, opposite of the previous philosophy. And what do you think?
Do I have to tell you? On that last day, he dissected this slice at the bits and it was in rubble. The third section was about stoicism. <laughs> then I realized, of course, we were leading to this. I mean, this is this the stoic. This is the way one can survive in life. Two weeks later, bare bones. Then we went through Christianity. And then we came to hedonism. Of course, you don't have to sell anybody on the concept of hedonism. By the end of the third paragraph, I was a hedonist man till, I mean, you just couldn't, uh, you couldn't see me for the dust. I was a hedonist. Two weeks later, it's rubble. And finally, at the end of the semester, we have destroyed the six philosophers. We have created them, loved them, and destroyed them. And now it's the last day of the class. We have all been waiting for our for our exams. We have alternated between being true believers and being totally disillusioned. And the last day of the class came, the exam. I suppose, you know, somebody, we're all worried about exams. And he says, I want to tell you, there's no exam. What can I ask you? So somebody said, but Dr. Everhart! And he says, yes. Which one is right? And there's a long pause. And Dr. Everhart says, none of them. And yet all of them. He says, all of my life I've been trying to figure out which one is right. He says, and the rest of you, you, all of you, are going to spend the rest of your lives trying to figure it out too. In fact, all of mankind has been trying to figure that out. So there ain't nobody right. None of them. End of the class. I went back to something easy, like differential equations. I somehow felt good when I sat in front of my slide room. It was so clean and simple. So irrevocably right. And I've never forgotten that class. That's why I've never totally bought any button, philosophy, ideology, dogma, in hoc curriculum, etc.